Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The Prime Minister is back at his desk, other than being there for the birth of his son, that is. MPs are back in Parliament, at least by video link, and the rest of us are still at home, more or less. The coronavirus lockdown continues, though governments across Europe are now setting out their plans for easing restrictions. And Boris Johnson may follow suit soon, although there is still a fierce cabinet debate on when and how. We'll be taking a look at the government's options. We've got a new paper out on the exit strategy this week, and uh, we'll be looking at making decisions in the middle of great uncertainty. Keeping the economy moving will be at the heart of any decision to lift the lockdown. The government's bailout package has been generous, but how does it begin to pull away that support? Again, we've another big paper out on that this week. And we're also going to talk about criminal justice, another area hard hit by the coronavirus outbreak, where we've also published a third big report this week. With courts across the land temporarily shut down, we could be set for a record-breaking backlog of cases. Before we get going, a reminder for you to look out for our sister podcast, IFG Live, which brings you the events which we used to hold in our building, now in very lively form. Get IFG Live on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get inside briefing, or at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And this week, look out for a bonus podcast, an inside briefing extra. Yesterday, I talked to Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the Commons on the new virtual parliament, whether it can really scrutinise the government's legislation properly, and whether there is any innovation from this time in parliament that he would like to keep. Don't say we aren't doing our best to keep you entertained. So let's kick on with uh, today's show. I'm delighted to be joined by Gus O'Donnell, Lord O'Donnell, who served as Cabinet Secretary from 2005 to 2010. Gus, how are you? 2011, please. Okay, let me change here. <laughs> 2011, yeah. a big year, yeah. Um, no, absolutely, the year of, of, uh, of uh, handover, if you like. How are you? Very well, thank you, yes. As, as you know, subject to all the constraints, but... Um, it's it's in some ways a, a very tragic period, but also a very interesting period to live through. When you were the country's top civil servant, what's the closest you came to this kind of situation, if there's anything that compared? Well, um, we had a pandemic, a swine flu pandemic, which wasn't uh, anything like as uh, fatal uh, as this. Uh, neither did it have the same transmission rates. Uh, and I suppose the other big thing would be the global financial crisis, which is kind of brought home to me every time I see those pictures of the Nightingale Hospital in London on the G20 site, on the on the Excel building, because that's where the G20 met during the global financial crisis. And it brings home to me one of the big differences between the global financial crisis and this one is the um, complete absence of international coordination in any really meaningful way in the way that the G20 got together to kind of stop protectionism and do really serious uh, international work with a very active Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, who used our links within the EU to then um, kind of leverage that up to the global level. Uh, And this time, in contrast, we have the one big international institution, the WHO, with the US threatening to reduce its funding to it. So it's quite stark, the differences. Yeah. And, and governments really going their own way, even within the European Union, or on this. And in a ah. sense, it, and, and, and then the Trump, uh, the Trump administration is very much going its own way. And you've got almost every country experimenting with its own solutions to this. Yes. And, and I think it brings home the kind of, 
you would have thought, you know, this this virus is pretty much the same virus around the world. Uh, it's a global problem. You would think this would be a time of sharing the experts, sharing the information, trying to come up with what are the best solutions in terms of, you know, even simple kind of questions like, does it make sense to wear masks or not? You know, we've got different answers around the world. And when people say, oh, well, we're following the science, well, it's quite clearly uh, interpreted in different ways in different places. So I think I find that quite frustrating. But it, it will be uh, an enormous opportunity afterwards. We've got natural experiments going on around the world for us to learn, you know, what do we get out of this? What are the right uh, ways to handle these sorts of things because we have genuinely got people taking very, very different approaches. Back with us again is Giles Wilkes, IFG Senior Fellow, former Number 10 Advisor and author of our new report into the Treasury's bailout plans, which uh, was published just about the same time as the Prime Minister's baby arrived. Um, Giles, how have you uh, um, spent the past two days defending some of the arguments you're, you were making? I've been defending, yes, I, I have been defending the arguments, although they've, they've been enjoying broad support. I've been picking up some nice signals from within government that they like the look of a report that sometimes acknowledges how complicated and difficult it is, because the IFG doesn't fall for this. But a lot of think tanks will come out and say, this is what you should do. It's obvious. Why haven't you done it already? Um, I've also been successfully isolating myself from any news about prime ministers and giving birth. I strongly believe in the public's right not to know about these things. And so I was focusing entirely on bailout policy yesterday, which was very pleasurable and um, informative for me. Well done. We're also joined by Nick Davies, Programme Director for all our work on public services and the author of another new IFG report on the criminal justice system. Nick, hi, welcome. Thank you. Have you managed to get any, any conversation about this going uh, in a week when uh, coronavirus is, uh, is dominating everything? Uh, well, I think like uh, Giles, the, the reception has been broadly positive. And as with his report, ours kind of just shows how complicated the whole criminal justice system is, but also how interdependent and kind of broad agreement on our views on how you police numbers will feed through to the courts and prisons, but also people raising issues about the kind of the bar and probation and other parts of the system that we didn't have time to cover. Great. Well, we'll come on to that because we're going to talk about these three things, the exit strategy, the bailout uh, strategy, if you like, and, and criminal justice. And let's start with the exit strategy. Our paper this week sets out our views on the decisions and the trade-offs, which are at the heart of that exit strategy, a phrase the government is now not so keen on. In it, we argue that the government's five tests, which it's, uh, it's published so far for easing the lockdown, don't really work as a guide for that decision. Nick, do you want to take us through why that is? Yeah, so let me just quickly go through the test. So number one is making sure the NHS can cope. Two, a sustained and consistent fall in the daily death rate. Uh, three, reliable data showing the rate of infection is decreasing to manageable levels. Four, ensuring the supply of tests and personal protective equipment can meet future demand. And five, being confident any adjustments will not risk a second peak that would overwhelm the NHS. I think all of those tests point towards one overarching objective, which is to minimise the number of deaths from coronavirus. And that was certainly the right objective to start with. But there were two other important objectives the government will need to balance against that. Um, one, the total number of deaths uh, from coronavirus and other causes, and two, the overall health 
of the economy. And those tests don't really say anything about how it might meet those other two objectives. So Giles, I mean, you, you've been arguing as well that uh, these don't work at all as a way of beginning to think about how to exit lockdown. I mean, no, they don't. I mean, I, although I'd repeat what Nick says, that they, they're all entirely focused on health and they accept the line that a lot of people in business accept too, which is that if you don't feel have coronavirus tackled, you're not going to get that recovery. There isn't a trade-off while it's at this level. And the remarkable support for lockdown is some indication of this, that most members of the public know that even if the government threw up its hands and said, you know what, do what you want, a lot of people wouldn't. And so we do absolutely have to deal with the health problems first. But there's an awful lot of vague wiggle room within these tests, in particular the last one, which is about there's no risk of a second peak, which is a very important test. It's also one where the government has probably identified its own political interests most strongly because a second peak would be politically so damaging. To be the government that says you can go out again and then see a surge of deaths later would be something that it's very hard to see a government recovering from. That's got, that particular test has got a lot of wiggle room because it's about modelling of unknowable variables going forward. And so within that, you could see all these arguments going on behind closed doors, which we don't have any access to and no guidance for, therefore. Gus, we made the argument in this piece that uh, the government in the, in the beginning didn't really have a choice about the lockdown, might have a choice about when to do it, but there wasn't really um, much of a, a choice about when to, uh, about trying to get a grip of the, uh, of the disease whose characteristics weren't very well known, um, either on pure economic grounds or because of the, the hit that might come to the economy or because of public pressure about deaths or just, just trying to get a grip of it all. But now it does have a choice. Do, do you buy that basic framework? Well, I think I'd start from asking that, you know, you, you mentioned, Nick mentioned three objectives. I would say there's one objective that should have been right there from the start, which was to minimise the damage from the virus, right? Yeah. And once you get that, it gives you a framework. Um, and the problem has been uh, that we've had these sort of, you know, slogans about not letting the NHS fall over. You know, and it's in one of the tests still. Can the NHS cope? Well, arguably, the NHS hasn't coped right from the start. As soon as we've moved into this, we've seen non-coronavirus uh, issues be left out. So there are indirect deaths being built up because people aren't getting tests, they aren't getting treatments and all the rest of it. So you know, it's always been the case that we've had these press conferences focusing on the visible and immediate, the number of deaths from coronavirus cases in hospitals, you know, a quite narrow group, cases as well, but cases identified by people who are tested, again, a very narrow group. And my criticism of this whole approach should be, no, no, the overall objective is minimise the negative impact. And that's not just direct, it's indirect as well. It's not just health. It's health by other means, so impacts on well-being. You know, you're going to have one and a half million unemployed, um, at, you know, probably a minimum. That's going to have well-being effects to come, which are dramatic income falls, you know. So we needed this group to come together to analyse this and look at it from a sensible set of uh, objectives. Uh, and I fear that we have been rather medically dominated and certainly in the presentation of all of this, we've oversimplified and we've therefore had medical experts 
giving us the results of epidemiological models and then secretaries of states coming on saying, well, of course, we can't tell you about anything that's going to happen in the future because it depends upon how you behave. Well, you know, come on. Um, we have a behavioral insights team. We know that behavior is partly influenced by the way we do things. So I worry that we just haven't had enough behavioral scientists and social scientists around the table coming up with advice to ministers about the serious trade-offs they have to make. I mean, you put it in a marvelously sweeping way that makes it sound very simple of, mm. um, look, we just want to try and uh, minimize the damage from this. But this doesn't that take yeah. you straight to the heart of these things? How do you weigh um, well-being against coronavirus deaths? How do you weigh uh, you know, economic damage, which is very hard to describe in detail and, um, and even in scale? against uh, against some of these other measures like death from coronavirus sure. or death from cancer uh, that wouldn't have happened otherwise it, it um it sounds it's it sounds neat but doesn't that in a way avoid some of the hardest questions I mean, Giles, what's what, I uh, sorry Gus, do, do come back on that but I would I well I don't think it avoids any of the harder questions it brings them out and and the the bottom line is and this is the paper that, um, that I uh, wrote with others from the LSE, the um, uh, Centre for Economic Progress, that um, it does involve things like putting valuations on life, some really tricky issues and trade-offs between all of these uh, different aspects. You have to make those. I mean, that's the nature of governing, and we do it every day. Uh, we do it in all the decisions we make, and someone will have to be making those trade-offs and it's much better they do it in a consistent manner, logical manner, than to do it sort of somewhat randomly. Do, do you think the initial decision about the rock lockdown was wrong? No, no. I mean, the, I'm, I'm not, I, I think the, the decision on lockdown when we look back on it will be that we actually did it too late and that uh, when we look back on these things, we'll say we probably should have gone for a much more severe restrictions on people coming in and on testing and tracing and tracking and all those things very early. I think that's one of the lessons and from in, in, in other your countries. Thing, obviously, you don't have the detailed yeah. analysis uh, uh, to hand, uh, even to the extent that the, the, the government does, but uh, an earlier lockdown would have been to what? To, to, to reduce uh, the number of deaths from coronavirus, uh, despite all the other damage that we're, we're describing? No, because if you if you lock down earlier, mm. you you um, you basically can reduce the amount of time you're in lockdown um, because you've stopped it at a basically lower level of R, if you like, because you're earlier on in the crisis. Now that's all with hindsight. I, I, it's not. I would say that's not really my main criticism. My main criticism would be the absence of an overall framework. And I'm, I'm glad to say, actually, the government is now advertising for, for more people with the skills I'm talking about to go and join these groups. Um, thank goodness. So I think that's great. Um, can I just add a clarification? Uh, well, a, a nuance to that argument. It wasn't absolutely clear at the outset, as, as Gus acknowledges there, that going down earlier would necessarily reduce the total number of deaths. Obviously, governments have been learning at pace here the Swedish government is still asserting that their much lighter policy can only be judged after several years because 
they thought that if you, if you lock down really, really early, you do run out of patients after a certain while. This is what the behavioural scientists were apparently telling the government. And then you might get a lower peak immediately, but you don't get anything like enough widespread immunity and eventually it bursts out again. I think, I mean, I'm not particularly sympathetic to the slow movement of this government a month or two ago, but I do think we have to acknowledge they weren't absolutely sure what would be the net best policy in terms of economic growth versus health in any case. They were just learning at speed. And Nick, we, we obviously we're having this discussion at the moment about um, whether or not um, stopping the NHS being overwhelmed should have been uh, one of the, the the government's targets. But do you buy the, uh, the government's argument, uh, which Matt Hancock, the health secretary, has uh, has put out there, uh, that that the, one of the government's achievements so far is to prevent the NHS being overwhelmed? Well, look, I, I think it's certainly true that by repurposing wards within existing hospitals and building new hospitals, the NHS has managed to significantly increase its ICU capacity. And in most cases, that has been above the level that's needed. Indeed, in some cases, it appears the capacity constraint is not now the kind of materials, it's it's the staffing. So, for example, the, the number of ICU nurses, and that's a capacity constraint that can't be solved overnight by throwing money at the problem. And indeed, is a, a problem that the government had already acknowledged with their target to increase the number of nurses by 50,000. So they've, they've certainly done well, but as others have said, that has come at a cost of other potentially life-saving treatments. So whether that's the kind of scaling down of um, cancer um, testing or whether it's just kind of the fact that hospitals have been retooled to focus on coronavirus, far fewer people are now going to hospital than they were in some cases, even though they have life-threatening diseases. And Gus, I mean, one of the things we're discussing implicitly is making decisions in the middle of an awful lot of uncertainty, which is something you you had to... um, cope with quite a bit. What What is your view about this, about making a plan in it? Can you really have a plan or can you, or, or do you just have to edge your way forward a constantly evolving plan? No, you, you absolutely, I mean, the key, I mean, virtually all of government's decision-making under uncertainty, the key really is ha- having a clear objective. And like I say, I think they've actually muddled that up. Um, and then having a clear framework. Uh, and I don't think we've seen the clear framework. I don't think they've quite got all of the different moving parts. And, you know, if, if there is a clear framework, why not publish it? You know, we're not asked, it doesn't need to have dates about when we're doing things, but, you know, how do they bring into all of these different factors, the behavioural stuff, you know, the impact on mental health, domestic violence, there's positives, there's uh, the impact on air pollution, um, road deaths are down, you know, lots and lots of things are going on. You need to kind of <clears throat> factor in some, some kind of framework that brings it all together. But the obsession is with the direct and visible. So we keep talking about the number of deaths and, and we kind of focused initially at least on just in hospitals. And that, you know, to my mind, is, is, is the distortion and the bias in the system which leads you to the kinds of policy solutions we've got that we are not taking account as, as much as we should of those indirect deaths which will be caused by things that didn't happen now, people that didn't go to A&E because they were scared of getting coronavirus. Whether that's rational or not, there are some behavioural responses which have had very negative impacts. 
Let's stick with that economic response and dig in a bit further. Giles, your, your new paper talks about the Treasury's response so far and, and also about what comes next. Do you want to take us through those two bits? First, what you make of it so far and then where you think it ought to go. Well, so far, what made this paper so challenging is we're dealing with a very dynamic situation in that at the beginning, the Treasury effectively turned around on itself and became unlike any treasury we'd ever seen. It became one that was positively welcoming claims on the public sector balance sheet, positively throwing away the book that says, look at private sector incentives, look at moral hazard, look at discouraging people from being irresponsible, look at who might have got us into this trouble and make sure they don't get rewarded for it. Took away all of that and said, we're going to try to make you whole for this period of where we're forcing you not to be able to receive revenue, earn an income, we're going to try to make you whole in every possible way. And that was the right policy. The way I've tried to characterise it, it's like ex-post insurance. In other words, they pretended that everyone had bought insurance against this uninsurable event, and they tried to pay out in every possible way. And that the pamphlet covers for about a third of it, partly because it goes against the way we used to talk about things. It goes against the pamphlet we produced only six months before, which thought out loud about what you would do if you had a no-deal Brexit, which did not encourage that kind of open-pocketed behaviour. But the difficulty is we all know that that's a very transitory phase. And I was trying to get at what it was about the initial phase that makes it right. But in the next few months, as the crisis deepens and as the markets start functioning again and the Treasury doesn't feel it has to stand in the stead of all these non-functioning markets, why we might be returning towards normality And that becomes a much more difficult time for both the Treasury and the economy. In particular, the Treasury might have to become more generous in the sense that it doesn't say that a loan is always the answer, because some loans won't get paid back and they might burden people and slow down the recovery. But at the same time, it might have to be more choosy in how it puts out the money. It might have to start saying, we're going to give you some direct grants, perhaps, or equity, but we're going to we're going to choose between the companies that we think are going to succeed and the ones that don't. And that's going to be a much more difficult phase because it's very easy to say at the beginning, you know what, no one in the economy is to be blamed for COVID. We should sort of bail you all out and hope this thing passes and then resume where we were in January. That's no longer the world we're in. And it means a whole load of extra thinking by a really exhausted and, in my view, very impressive Treasury team on the basis of their but as you said, a much more difficult task. I, I, I must say, incidentally, I love the phrase, it makes someone whole, which I tend to associate with the Sopranos and kind of more movies. But uh, yes. economists use it too. Uh, Gus, what about Jaza's uh, argument for how the government begins to withdraw support? Is that something that the Treasury and the government can actually be equipped to do with all the detailed decisions that that might imply? Yes, I think so. I, I mean, I, I'm very impressed with this i think this is a very good paper um the point about moral hazard i think is right it, it, again takes me back to the global financial crisis where the bank of england if you remember were talking about uh all problems of moral hazard and actually uh, very quickly it became clear that wasn't the main issue and that we needed to just um, support our financial system otherwise the whole economic infrastructure would fall apart I think that's the analogy I would look to. The, the contrast with no-deal Brexit, in a sense, that would have been a government choice. So um, the virus is not a choice. Right? We're, it's imposed on us. And I think uh, that the Treasury has done an amazing job. I think they've, they've learned lessons from the past. 
they've realized that um, given this is almost a government-induced recession, we have stopped people spending, that they have fiscal tools as a result, partly of having got the deficit down. Uh, we do have some fiscal space and it's being used. And the programs they put together, you know, the furlough program, I think, has been done amazingly well. The other ones are, are more difficult and more complicated, and I think Treasury and HMRC are doing, doing a great job. In terms of where we go from here, uh, I agree we need to think, again, creatively. There are different ways of doing this, not just debt guarantees. I am very nervous about 100% guarantees being given out because I think we do know that the new world as we come out of this, will be different from the old world. There will be a new normal. Um, and that new normal, a number of firms that were perfectly viable going into this crisis will not be viable on the other side of it. And what's, your, what's your feeling about uh, raising the constraints by sector um, or by part of the, or by region of the country? Because some of the, uh, the parts of the country, in fact, some of the poorer parts of the country are also less affected uh, than, than sure. London is. So my objective in all this would be uh, raise it in ways which uh, minimises the risk of a um, second wave. Um, and the, minimising the risk of the second wave is obviously good for the economy and for businesses. I think everybody gets that. And uh, to ensure that people have the confidence to go back, that means you need to have got the R rate down quite considerably. That's the rate, rate of transmission, a number that we've become exactly. you know, almost yeah. fluent in. Exactly. Ah, less than one um, to get to the right place. So in terms of, of what constitutes safe, I'd say let's think about those areas where you can uh, deliver physical distancing uh, and um, get back to normal. Uh, so there will be some areas of business where that's possible. Uh, we are seeing areas of the retail sector like uh, food shops who are managing to operate with physical distancing rules, you know, one in, one out, that sort of thing. Maybe we can extend that to more shops, uh, some manufacturing and construction sites will be able to operate in that way. I think one of the difficulties will be how do you manage uh, public transport? So yes, you can, when you get to your work, you can operate in a safe way, but it may be that it's unsafe in getting there. I mean, as, as a Londoner, I particularly feel this. You know, when I got on the Northern Line, I can definitely guarantee that um, there, were, there have always been people, plenty of people within two metres of me. You can't um, turn a, a tube carriage into, into a one-person carriage or it becomes a car, essentially. It, it, uh, yeah, so you, you'd need to reduce capacity considerably. You know, are, are there ways of doing that? Hopefully... We'll get a lot more people on their bikes and walking. Um, that'll be great. We may need to think about, do we want to go back to the status quo ante? Do we want to think about uh, limiting further the number of cars that come in to encourage more people to go by bike? Um, or or I, encouraging I people to stay working at home. I mean, this is, this is all really... Interesting Indeed. discussion. But for just before we leave this, this section on the, uh, the, the bailout, um, I'd love to ask um, Gus and Giles, you both, on this question about um, whether the country can afford it, in a sense. So, Gus, you said in, in one of your answers, um, uh, there's a bit of fiscal room here. Does it even make sense to talk about 
um, the, the debt that is being accumulated as a result of this? Or is really the priority to, to, to kind of come through this and worry about that later? Um, should I have a go first? Um, I, I strongly believe that this can be afforded. I mean, not least because interest rates are extremely low. I thought James Bullard, who's um, on the Federal um, Interest Rate Setting Commission in the United States, put it really well at the beginning that seeing this as a recession mischaracterizes it because all recessions, you just want to counter them immediately, get spending up immediately. This is everybody making a really big investment in future public health. And if you take the recent OBR statement about what it thinks might be going on, effectively, the UK is going to forego about £300 billion worth of production, and about two-thirds of that is going to be carried by the state. And if you worked out how you would amortise that and like deal with it over like 20 years, by my calculations, which are in the paper, it's around £20 billion a year, which, to put it in context, is much less than the amount of money we lost in terms of tax cuts we did during the coalition when we were meant to have been in a fiscal crisis. So can we afford to pay £20 billion a year to pay off the debt that we have picked up um, through this? Absolutely, we can. The thing we can't afford is to come out of it very, very weakly. If we come out of it at a lower growth path than we were already on because of scarring because from, the debt, from the crisis or because of the restrictions forced upon us by coronavirus and not being able to operate the economy as we would like, then we really are in a much more difficult position. And you've got to bear in mind that the public will probably demand higher public spending on a lot of things too, which it will have to pay for with taxes. So it's very challenging. But can a government afford to pay for a couple of hundred billion pounds to deal with this sort of thing? Absolutely it can. Gus, you agree? Yes, I I would um, pretty much agree with that. I think the way I uh, regard this, um, I think Mervyn King used this phrase, first of all, is, uh, almost government-induced recession. You know, by going to a lockdown, you are stopping people spending, and and that necessarily brings this big fall in GDP. Um, now, <clears throat> it's it's in, in another way of showing why GDP is not really a very relevant measure of the success of society or governments. So, I think that's happening. I think it's absolutely kind of economics 101 that this is where the government should step in. This is exactly what borrowing is for. They're, they're doing exactly the right thing. Uh, Giles mentioned scarring, which is hugely important and is, is a, uh, one of the reasons why I really worry about the long-term impact of the unemployment. Um, we have got to, be, to try and minimise that, which means that those firms which, in the absence of the lockdown arrangements, were perfectly viable before and will be perfectly viable afterwards, we need, if we can, to do everything possible to make sure that they stay in business. And that's one reason why I think the furloughing programs are particularly good because they're, they're, they're not only keeping incomes up, but they're actually associating people with employment. And they, they, you know, therefore, unemployment doesn't rise. Contrast with income replacement only schemes, which allow unemployment to rise dramatically. The US is very much in this mode where I think you'll get much bigger scarring effects because people have lost that contact with jobs.
Let's turn now to an entirely different area or apparently different uh, criminal justice. Nick, your new paper's out this week and you, you're talking about major pressures ahead for both prisons and the courts. What's, what's going on? Yes, absolutely. So we have looked at both the impact of the government's existing policy to increase the number of police officers by 20,000 uh, and also the impact that coronavirus has had on the police uh, criminal courts uh, and prisons. So starting with the 20,000 additional police officers, which will be recruited over the the next few years, Um, more uh, officers likely means more charges, more cases going through courts and uh, more prisoners in our almost full prisons. Um, So in our central scenario, we think the prison population could rise to nearly 90,000. That's its highest ever level by 23 at 24. And it could even top 95,000 in our high scenario. And in in both cases, that's uh, well beyond the the planned capacity of prisons. And it needs to be borne in mind that actually the performance of prisons in recent years has really declined quite substantially. So there's been a huge increase in violence, uh, levels of self-harm, and fewer prisoners taking the courses and gaining the qualifications uh, that could help ensure they don't re-offend after leaving prison. So there's a real risk um, that the 20,000 additional police officers could exacerbate those conditions and they could decline further if the number of prisoners grows so significantly. Uh, On coronavirus, um, so we look at different scenarios for how it might impact on the the number of police charges uh, and also how court capacity will fall. Um, And actually there the impact is much greater on the court. So for example, if the shutdown of courts last for six months. Our central projection time is that waiting times could increase by 60% in the Crown Court, which would mean uh, defendants uh, waiting more than six months uh, before their case was heard, and that those uh, waiting times would stay that long indefinitely um, without further action. Now, the government... And it could, could, couldn't, it, couldn't it help? Um, you've got the police out there saying, look, people aren't out on the street stabbing each other anymore. Couldn't it you know, reduce the number of of crimes, of certain kinds of crime. Absolutely. So there has already been a fall in the number of recorded crimes. However, the police only charge a very small fraction of the total number of crimes that there are. So actually the total number of crimes isn't really what is determining um, how many police charges there are. But it is also true that the police time has been freed up in some way. So they're not having to police large sporting events. There aren't uh, people out uh, drinking on high streets uh, every Friday and Saturday. However, to offset against that, uh, the police are having to spend time uh, overseeing the lockdown, uh, and they've also seen uh, quite high levels of uh, officers who are off sick or self-isolating. So we think there is likely to be a fall of kind of up to 40% uh, in the number of charges uh, put through by police. But that's likely to be a much smaller fall than the fall in the capacity of the courts. Uh, So particularly in the Crown Court, so, you know, roughly 75% of time in the Crown Court is spent on jury trials and jury trials were stopped completely um, just at the end of March. And even if they start up again, it's only likely that a, a fraction of those cases will be able to go ahead, which means if you've got more people being charged than the courses, the courts were able to process, that the backlog is likely to grow. So is, it, is the answer just money? I mean, there are a number of ways you go about it. So the you 
could, for example, uh, try to rapidly um, increase the use of virtual trials. Uh, and indeed, uh, the Ministry of Justice has a kind of ongoing program to allow kind of greater use of remote trials. However, that has not been used much at all in the criminal courts. And there are some real genuine concerns there about what the impact might be, both on the principle of open justice, um, that is that journalists, but also interested members of, of the public can watch trials, uh, but also whether defendants will get a fair trial, that if they're not in the same room as the magistrate, jury or judge that is deciding on their case, that they might be treated more harshly. So we think it would be wrong to try and rapidly expand virtual trials now but it wouldn't take that much additional money to clear the backlog. And actually, if the government spent 50 to 100 million pounds per year over two years, then you could clear the backlog back to pre-crisis levels within a couple of years. And um, this is the kind of innovation that Gus was talking about in, in a different context. Of, of, and the courts have done quite a bit, haven't they, uh, to make these virtual trials possible, even if they're not very popular I mean, I, I hear a lot anecdotally that the, the lawyers don't mind them at all. Judges are really uh, not wildly keen and, um, and uh, defendants or plaintiffs are uh, very uneasy indeed. Um, but still, the courts have been talking about digitising themselves for ages, haven't they? And they, they, have, they have taken some jumps forward in the past few months. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, that it's mostly in kind of the non-criminal courts. So it's, it's been used more in family courts. Uh, it's been used more uh, in tribunals. And in often cases, it's, you know, doing it via telephone, um, etc. So it, it has been, they have been trying to roll it out. Um, but it's, in terms, of, they haven't yet got much evidence on what the impact of that has been, how successful it's been. Gus, these questions of courts and prisons have plagued British governments for a very, very long time, it seems, eternally. Is this a, a British problem or is this just um, a not a very popular area where the public <laughs> have money spent on, so it's always prone to being short of money? I, I think part of the problem is we, we always uh, react to problems about crime by, by looking at the wrong end of it and by thinking about, I remember during my time with Tony Blair's government, there are times when we built lots of prisons and then the times when we uh, went back. I mean, ultimately, the answer is prevention, not cure, uh, stopping people going to prison in the first place. And if they do go to prison, putting the emphasis on the governors and every aspect of the prison should be about minimising the reoffending rate. And we end up with politicians saying, we're going to give you 20,000 more police. You know, it's a bit like 20,000 more doctors or nurses. You know, the, these are inputs, and I don't think this is really the way to go about trying to reform the criminal justice system. On your individual points, I mean, the problems of getting them to move away from paper to digital, uh, I have scars uh, from many years <laughs> over that. Um, it is an area where it seems it's particularly difficult to innovate and tradition matters a lot. And obviously we want uh, things to be, uh, you know, justice to be swift, fair and clear. Um, and it's, it's difficult, you know, the, this is an area where there is a, a dearth of evidence as well. You know, I think some of the, the behavioural stuff that looked at uh, sentencing results uh, simply by time of day of, of 
cases and the like, a lot of the behavioural literature on criminal justice, I don't think that's been quite taken on board in this country in the way it has in some others. And this the coronavirus crisis has reminded us of the many, many police forces uh, that there are in the country. Another uh, long debate. Oh. You yes. think, um, yeah, and uh, I think the whole country feels they know the Derbyshire police uh, videos are backwards now. What's your view on that? Ah, uh, there's too many. Um, yeah. You know, and they're, and they're all doing their own procurement. And now I may be out of date on this. Hopefully things have moved on. But um, this is one of those things where I, I just never understood the structure of our police system. And it doesn't make much sense to me. And there are lots of things we could do better i think uh, if we for example had national procurement and we didn't have different kinds of requirements uh, for you know people buying essentially the same things cars uniforms at uh sub levels rather than at uh, national levels so it's a case where decentralization doesn't work that well then. I mean, just as interesting on that, because that is obviously exactly the same argument that had been made about the NHS and is one of the reasons why um, procurement was centralised through NHS supply chain. And that's now been kind of heavily criticised uh, for its inability to get EPE to the front line. So I, I think the advantage of a national system is you can get the kind of the potentially expensive procurement experts there. You can get better deals. You can use your purchasing power. But if you have the wrong strategy or you're making the wrong decisions, then that applies across the entire country. The advantage of a slightly more decentralized approach is other forces might see Derbyshire and decide to do something quite differently. Um, so, there, you know, there's a kind of try and testing that you can do if you're using the evidence from local approaches. Well, do you think the NHS would have fared better with local procurement? In, in some ways, probably not. So one of the reasons why they did this was because the, the local areas were procuring very badly and getting bad deals. And as Gus said, there was a lot of variation in terms of how much was being paid for even basic goods. I think probably there is a, there is a case for building expertise in the centre, but there is also a case for building much more expertise distributed around the country. So our research on outsourcing has found that actually the cabinet office, they have a huge number of experts. The uh, commercial directors in departments now all have pretty extensive private sector experience, but it, it gets worse the further away from Whitehall that you get. And so government needs to spend much more time and, and probably money trying to improve procurement skills right across the public sector, uh, not just in Whitehall. Well, it was always going to be difficult for the NHS or anyone to buy vast quantities and distribute them of something that uh, which there's a world shortage, not just a national shortage. But I'm absolutely confident that this question of procurement is one that we're, we're going to come back to. With that, though, we have to wrap up this week's Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Gus O'Donnell, Giles Wilkes and Nick Davies. And thank you all for listening too. Inside Briefing will return next week and our new sister podcast, IFG Live, will keep bringing you the debates, discussions and conversations which we've always been holding. Do check out the latest episode in which our IFG colleague Joe Owen speaks to Wendy Williams, the author of the recent independent review into the Windrush scandal, Essential Listening. And of course, there's the extra episode for my interview with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one, and you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. And you can find us on our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, which has lots and lots of other material as well. We'd love to share that with you. 
Stay well and see you soon. <laughs>